I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Sarah Crichelle. What's up? Editor-in-chief of the Eye-Opener, Director of Operations at the Canadian University Press, freelancer for Vice. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about the report from the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. It took Canada three years to produce this and just a few hours to find a reason to ignore it. And as the Conservatives predicted, the government's crusade against hate speech online gets hijacked by a rabid leftist. Yes, Lindsay Shepard appeared before Parliament. Glad to have you here for it. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Aaron Kronk, Devin Monroe, Jack Vickery, Curtis Judd, Sarah Laddick, Jeremy Kay, Lawrence Mial, and Danny. Hi, I'm Danny. I'm a teacher in Perry Sound, and I support Canada Land because I want everyone to be able to listen to the important stories that it covers, like corruption and racism in Thunder Bay, or the impact of the oil industry on our environment. And Sarah, as I mentioned, this episode is brought to everybody by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Is it important to you that your mattress is Canadian-made? You know what? It's important to me that they have really creative ads, which they do. I look at Endy's quotes on the subway all the time. I think that all of their advertising is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. uh, I can also tell you that their mattress is pretty good, too. I sleep on it every night. and uh, That I, part's relevant, too, yeah. As you can see, I'm, I I look like a man half my years. I, I'm, oh, yeah. Well slept. Yeah. Filled Hardly with any energy. bags. Oh, my yeah. God. Agreeable. Um, <laughs> Uh, It's a good mattress. You can return it after 100 nights if you don't like it. What they'll do is they'll find somebody who needs a mattress and they'll just give it to them. But that doesn't happen very often because people like their indie mattresses. They have free shipping to every Canadian province in a box the size of a hockey bag. It is this country's best-selling mattress. It has the highest rate of customer satisfaction, the lowest rate of returns. Get 50 bucks off of any indie mattress at indie.ca when you use the promo code CanadaLand. Once again, that's indie.ca, promo code CanadaLand. Sarah, the report into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls came out this week. It is over a thousand pages long, but even before it was officially released, before anybody even had a chance to read the thing, 
the media got their hands on a copy and Canadians got the message from our media about the only word that we really had to pay any attention to. Why did the inquiry decide to call the disappearance and murder of Indigenous women and girls a Canadian genocide? What's the reaction to the use of the phrase Canadian genocide to describe what has been happening? This uh, continued throughout the rest of the press. Chantal Hébert in the Toronto Star, murdered and missing women report risks being ignored with its all-or-nothing approach, she wrote, because of its use of the term genocide. Globe and Mail's editorial board, is Canada committing genocide? That doesn't add up. Similar skepticism, scrutiny, and outright dismissal of that from Chris Sully and Brian Platt and John Iveson of the National Post. We heard this throughout the media, across platforms, not simply a criticism of the use of the term genocide, but the media telling us, oh, this report is going to be ignored because it goes too far. What did you think about that? I mean, when it comes to these word debates, I feel like it's always kind of coming down to the same thing. It might be kind of like a two-pronged issue, but I think the main thing that people are accusing using the word genocide of is that it's this kind of like political propaganda and it's, it's used to kind of shift political discourse around a particular issue. And I think actually like not using the word is more of propaganda because if you're not calling it for what it is, then like what are we doing? Like why are we not acknowledging it for what it is? Well, because I think to a lot of people, genocide has a very specific meaning, right? Like homicide is killing a person. Uh, regicide, as we all know, is killing a monarch, very common term. And genocide, well, that, that's killing an ethnic group, you know, like getting out there and killing an ethnic group. And whatever we're doing, indigenous people, I think that the common uh, wisdom on this is like, well, we're not going out there and putting them in gas chambers, right? So that's a step too far. Don't use that word. Right. But we put them in residential schools. Well, there's that. But even that isn't, you know, rounding them up and killing them, which is what people commonly understand genocide to mean. And people are saying we have to use the right word. That's not what the word means, which led me to looking up what does genocide actually mean? I know that that's how it's commonly used, but what does the term actually mean? And, you know, you want to get pedantic, let's get pedantic. Like, right. you know, we're journalists, we care about words and their right. meanings. So it was coined by Polish lawyer Raphael Lemkin in 1943, and uh, genocide combining genos, race, or a people, and side to kill. But this is how he actually defined it. Generally speaking, genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation. It is intended rather to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups. The disintegration of the political and social institutions, culture, language, national feelings, religion, the economic existence of national groups, uh, the destruction of their personal security, liberty, health, their dignity, even the lives of the individuals belonging to such groups. That almost sounds like you're describing what Canada has yeah. done to Yeah, I mean, people. yeah, you're just proving the point here. <laughs> and then, okay, okay, yeah, but that was the guy who coined it way right. back. And what about the actual, like, legal def? Like, what does the mm -hmm. UN say? Like, what is international law in the United Nations? What do they have to say? Like, like, how do you define genocide? Okay, so any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. Killing members of the group, okay, yes. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. We forcibly transfer more indigenous children from their mother's arms to other groups than we do to any other ethnic group in this country, right? Yeah. Like we've been sterilizing indigenous women, like coercively without informed consent, you don't get to see your newborn baby until you like agree to be sterilized. Like there, there's an allegation that that was happening last year. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with you. I think like our media has decided that this is like, hey, there's lots of stuff you can say about missing and murdered, but you're politicizing this. You're radicalizing this by using this term genocide. It would actually be politicizing it to not use that word. Like it's almost like we want a political goal here. We want people to listen to this. So you can't push this too far. So let's remove, let's censor that word, right. even though it's the right word. Yeah. That would actually be a politicization. I also think that like even just the act of like turning to just like your average dictionary or turning to some source that's supposed to give you this like ultimate definition of like what this word means. Like, for example, when people are arguing that about just the term racism or racism, like can you be racist against white people? Like the term of racism is defined as believing that any race is superior to any other race. Right. 
And I'm like, okay, well, like every source that exists as some like colossal ultimate source is in itself possessive of those prejudices, right? I mean, this is a media criticism show, so it's all about like very close textual readings right. of of language and words, but not just like there's all kinds of things that fit into this. Like we can look at who is saying these things, you yeah. know? If we look at the media response to this report and all the people saying genocide, I don't know about that. I don't see any indigenous people. Yeah, like, of you know, course, of so, course. You know, who do we turn to when we're trying to weigh this question of like, is genocide the appropriate term? Who gets to talk? Uh, Romeo Dallaire. Romeo Dallaire yeah. gets to talk, and so they go to Romeo Dallaire because, of course, he was witness to the Rwandan genocide, and he mm-hmm. says, I'm not comfortable with that, using genocide in this context. My definition of genocide, says Dallaire, it has to be a deliberate act of government to exterminate deliberately and by force and directly an ethnicity or a group of human beings, and that meant actually going and slaughtering people. So by the Romeo Dallaire definition, unless we're going and slaughtering indigenous people, it doesn't qualify. And it's an interesting implication. It's like Dallaire by virtue of his experience in Rwanda, he gets to have some say as to how we define right. this term. It's a very right, political right, right. act, yeah. what the definition is. Yeah. Well, I mean, with all due respect to Romeo Dallaire, that's the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. What is the Canadian genocide? Right. Because there is one, you yeah. know? And why are we asking him? I mean, I don't even know if anyone's asking him. CBC asked him. Okay, well, there you right? go. Right, so you're a public broadcaster yeah. who I think has an outsized soapbox with which to define terms and set debates. They are asking him, and they're not asking other people. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess if you're turning it to the media outlets themselves, like, I, I think the best response is kind of, like, on many episodes, as you've said, like, media outlets are part of, like, the biggest influencers, right? And the people who run these outlets are the biggest influencers on Canada, or some of the biggest ones. And, like, I think... A really good example of when rhetoric really mattered and like shifting the way that we talk about things was with the anti-choice movement. And when there was kind of this like really blatant shift from calling it pro-life to anti-choice. Yeah. And I'm only speaking from like my experience with uh, the eye opener Ryerson's independent newspaper. But what we did was like we actively put out an editorial that said this is why we're calling this this from now on. This is why we're using the terms anti-choice because pro-life is propagating this idea that people who are pro-choice are anti-life, which is just like nonsensical. (laughs) It's actually like quite the opposite. I think this is a really good example of when you can look to media outlets to really like blatantly address the confusion and say like, this is why we're doing this and this is why we're calling it this from now on. We're not just going to ask kind of, I don't want to say random people, but just individuals with a very particular experience. We need to ask the people who are going through this specific thing. Maybe it's a phenomenon that we haven't been talking about enough. Maybe it's something that we need to understand better. And we need to go to those sources on the ground. We can't just ask people who kind of have a different understanding of a similar issue. I mean, I think that the problem is, is that we're not necessarily dealing with good faith argument. You know, it's sort of like if somebody was to say, oh, I don't know if this qualifies as genocide and they were in good faith, then you could point them to those definitions and say, actually, your concept and the common concept of genocide is not the technical definition. And then they might say, oh, I stand corrected. Canadian treatment of indigenous people does qualify as genocide. Let's move on to the recommendations and how to implement Mm -hmm. them. But of course, in many cases, that's not who you're talking to. You're talking to people who will kind of look to any excuse not to look at the recommendations. And so we we get stuck at this point. And when the media is saying, oh, this is going to get overlooked because of the of the the use of this too strong word. I'm like, well, you're doing that. Yeah. You know, and and it's already like, you know, this took three years for the inquiry and even getting that inquiry to be conducted took years and years and years of of pressure and lobbying. And within three days, we've moved on to another topic because this is getting basically relegated to uh, that report got radicalized. That report got it was too far. And now we can ignore it. And that's a disgusting pattern that I believe the media is perpetuating in this case. I mean, that's really something, you know, there's thousands of people who are killed. And what the report is trying to say is you have to look at these deaths in the context of everything that has happened. And the point of this is that we should all look at this as like, yeah, we're all complicit in creating these circumstances. So to actually address it, we'd have to actually like look back at the root. And we are being encouraged through the supposedly left leaning media, the, the, the conservative media. All the media is basically saying, ignore I think going back to your point about kind of teaching or educating the people who are kind of looking for any excuse to say you're exaggerating or that's not actually what this was. Let's call it what it was. Yeah. I think that the issue with trying to educate those groups is that we can't just 
kind of meet them halfway, I don't think. And I think this is a common view amongst like people who work on the ground and activists and grassroots activists. I think that those people would say like, well, why are we trying to amend our language to what's going to convince these people that we have to meet halfway in order to believe us? What I hear commonly when I when I speak to activists, like whether it's an interview or whether it's like whatever, like a, a source or, or whoever it is, they kind of say, I'm not going to half-ass my argument here. Yeah. Otherwise, the help that I'm going to get and the belief that I'm going to get is half-ass itself. So I think that using a term like genocide, like just like making the choice that this is what it was and not just recognizing it as a, a kind of soft blow cultural genocide, like calling it a planned genocide is kind of the act of accepting the fact that like we are no longer accepting a half ass help. Like we are going to call this for what it is. If you're on board, good. Like finally educate yourself. Like let's sure like the job of a report like this is not to sugarcoat and coax people into yeah. participation like if you're looking back at like from the the origins like i mean really from first contact but like whether it's john a mcdonald like forcibly starving indigenous peoples uh, yeah. on the prairies or whether it's like you know residential schools are like we're going to take the indian out of the child like yeah, yeah that's what we tried to do it's, yeah. it's you know and i don't know i think the one part where the definition doesn't match some things that are happening today is that it, both definitions still have intent you know, you have to be intending to destroy the people yeah. for it to qualify. And where the report may be pushing past that is like, well, look, if you are working in like child services and it's your unfortunate job to remove a baby from its parents, you may actually really care about these people. And that might be torturing you that you have to do this and you might have to do it anyhow because your job forces you to do it. And there might be a good argument that the child needs to be removed. You're not intending to destroy indigenous people by doing your job, but you might be. Right. And that's a very hard thing for people to get their heads around. Like you, you might be like that act is destabilizing a family. It suggests that we need to work on new frameworks for that person to do a different thing. Or is there some way of dealing with the community or the family to not take the child out of their community? And that might be beyond that person's pay grade. And that person doesn't want to feel guilty that they're participating in a genocide. I mean, who does? But like, can we swallow it? Like, can we take that? That maybe we are all somewhat implicated in a system that, that has always done that. I agree with you. I don't think that we should be letting ourselves off the hook. Like, we do need to swallow that and wear that. It's the only way we're going to actually figure out a different way of doing things. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community they're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Sarah, it's your first time on Canada Land Shortcuts. It is. You may not be aware that we duly note that which uh, must be duly noted, items that have perhaps gone undernoticed in the media. Right. I have it duly noted that duly noted exists. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your participation uh, <laughs> with this uh, rit ritual of ours. Okay. You know what? I'm going to start. I'm going to duly note your own work. You did something that we couldn't do. You got Adrian Batra, the yeah. editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun, to uh, 
actually provide some level of accountability to yeah, the her goat. version of it. Right. All we can ask for. I mean, we have asked her uh, many times, will she come and like defend? I mean, most notoriously the goat slaughtering article by Sue Ann Levy, but there's mm-hmm. a long list of things that any editor in chief should have to answer for, mm-hmm. for any big paper like the sun. And she will not be interviewed by us, but you got her. Was it easy to get her to sit down with you for an interview? No. <laughs> No, I started about, I guess it's been like nine months now, but um, it was for the Ryerson Review of Journalism, Mm -hmm. which is a magazine that comes out of the Ryerson School of Journalism, uh, which she repeatedly says that Ryerson hates her. She said that over and over to me. And that's definitely not where I was coming from with it. Uh, Basically, I started in, I think it was October, I sent my first email request to her until I was able to get a hold of her cell phone number. It took like multiple emails, multiple missed calls, like numerous times hearing her voicemail. And eventually I got her to agree to You write like 15 times you had to reach out before you actually... Yeah, 15 times for the email follow-ups. Calls, I can't even count how many times I called her because she misses her calls a lot. Yeah. And I think it kind of I think she noticed the pattern of like when I call her and I'm sure she has caller ID. So that's probably why I just always went to voicemail. Might have been avoiding you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no question about it. I mean, at a certain point, it was definitely like you are avoiding me. But before a certain point, I couldn't tell if she was just like ridiculously busy. But I know that she's really bad with emails in general. So eventually she apologized to me for that once I finally got her to agree to it. I mean, she's the um, editor in chief of a paper. She's got plausible deniability with just like I'm super, super busy. Yeah. Of course, I'm not aware of her giving any kind of interview about her work to anyone. Yeah. And then she agrees. But you have to chase her and chase her and chase her beyond what I think is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Finally, you're supposed to shadow her for a day. Yeah. And they tell you that you'll be able to like hang out with her and watch her do her job until 3 p.m. Yeah. But like it was done by 11. Kicked out by 11. Yeah. Which is fine. <laughs> Did you have a chance to ask her about the goat slaughtering article? Yeah. Yeah. Sue Ann Levy yeah. and others are saying, oh, the refugees are turning this place into a refugee camp. Yeah. And they're slaughtering goats in the bathroom. And, and Faith this... Goldie had her mayoral. Right. Then somebody comes with a gas canister, yeah. lights on fire. And then they say, oh, well, the cops couldn't find a direct link. And therefore, yeah. there's no connection whatsoever. When we sat down in a Starbucks after doing a couple of like TV and radio panels at Global News, I realized that that was my one chance to ask her. And, I, and you know, typically in an interview, you kind of want to like not like manipulate the person into trusting you, but you just want to be friendly. You don't want to attack them right away, right? And so I realized that like kind of the order I had in mind of when to ask her about the goats uh, kind of had to be reversed because I had no idea what time I was playing with here. Yeah. So I, I kind of just like delved into her life a little bit and then uh, we, we quickly transitioned into asking about uh, these like viral columns that they always have, particularly, like you said, the goat slaughtering column from Sue Ann Levy back in uh, late September, early October. And... Yeah, I just I asked her plain and simple, like, where were you when this happened? And she said she doesn't remember. She tried to for a few seconds, but she doesn't remember. Then I asked her, what is your take on it? What was your side of the story? And she talked like this. She said that she went into fix it mode right away. Yeah. The first thing she said to me was, these are things we don't really talk about, which was strange to me because like as... Like, I, I am now, like, a fellow editor-in-chief. And, like, these are things that I would kind of, like, immediately want to answer to, which is why I kind of, like, compelled her to talk to me in the first place. I'm like, this is, like, good for you. Like, this isn't good for the rest of us. Like, this is your chance to say what your side of this is. And you can speak for yourself. Like, we are asking you to do that. And this isn't some sort of attack piece. If you read the piece, like, it, it reads very fairly. Like, I know that some of my, like, left-wing peers were kind of, like, disappointed in how much I kind of just let her speak for herself, which is another story. But she kind of just said, you know, I went into fix-it mode and um, we do what we have to do to make sure that we're held accountable and, and we got to not worry too much about the backlash and, and just worry about rectifying things as soon as we can. And she told me very vaguely that she had discussions with uh, James Wallace, their then editorial director, I believe it was. Now working for Doug Ford. Now working for Doug Ford. And uh, conversations as well with Sue Ann Levy, the columnist who wrote the columns. And that was it. She chalked it up to that, essentially. And, and I asked her, like, do you feel any sense of responsibility for kind of what people are assuming are consequences of this column, which was the alleged arson that took place at the hotel? I mean, there was there was an arson attempt at the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. But it was alleged that it was targeted at the refugees. Sure. So you wrote this up for Ryerson and then you uh, wrote about kind of a meta piece about how hard it was to do this for yeah. us. And people can mm-hmm. read that on our site now. 
And I don't think you got very far in terms of getting her to be accountable. She just basically like shrugs off accountability. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that there was a revelation in, first of all, just how difficult, it, like just documenting how, how this editor-in-chief yeah. evaded yeah. Uh, accountability. And what was most eye-opening to me was what you got out of her where she said, we don't talk about these things, as, yeah. as you just mentioned. Yeah. We deal with this internally. Yeah. I, fi- I fix my newsroom yeah. within my newsroom. And later you got out of her. She says, I don't answer to the Twitter mob. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, well, who, well, I'm not, you know, like you're there as a journalist asking, mm-hmm. her, like, are you the Twitter I'm mob? I'm not Twitter mob. Yeah. You know, but she's and then she's sort of like, I don't answer to Jesse Brown. Yeah. Which was interesting because at an earlier moment she did come on Canada Land. Yeah. And she, you know, <laughs> yeah. had agreed to. But speak. she texted me this morning saying she's a big fan of yours. <laughs> well, we're like on friendly terms, or we were right. when she was still speaking with me. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting association that, like, in order to find some justification to not actually answer for that mm-hmm. piece or their plan to back Doug Ford explicitly mm-hmm. through their news coverage yeah. or, or ten other things the Sun has done under her watch, it's like. I think it plays okay to say, well, there's a bunch of like, you know, conservative hating trolls on Twitter. Yeah. I don't answer to them. Okay. Well, Jesse Brown's asked you for an interview. Well, maybe he's one of them or he represents them. Maybe we can put him in that category. Yeah. And then you're like, well, what about me? I'm a student journalist here Mm -hmm. uh, asking you questions in good faith. And you're like, well, Ryerson hates me. Yeah. So I'm not going to speak to you. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, who have you spoken to? Yeah. You know, and there's, it doesn't happen. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe you're just not going to talk to anyone. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't want to be accountable and you're trying to see if you can get away with that. I don't know. When when it comes to accountability, the sun is kind of in their own world of it. Like, I mean, I, I believe that they do kind of want to hold themselves to account. I mean, they're there. You can contact them. Their emails on their, are on their website. Like, sure. And so the word I mean, accountability. That's what every newspaper of course. has to do. Like. Right, right. But I just mean that, like, they know that the term exists. They do not <laughs> think that this is some. I'll give them that. Yeah. And, and so that's what I mean. I, I kind of wrote about this in the piece that I wrote for you guys, just that, like, what do you do when their mandate of accountable journalism is so different from ours? And I tried to come at it from not like this, like, left-leaning view, like, I am angry for these communities of color. Like, I just came at it from like, okay, you are a woman of color responsible for a media outlet that's notorious for its whiteness, that's notorious for its rhetoric that's accused of racism and homophobia and and Mm anti-immigration and anti-Islam, all these different things. Do you feel no sense of responsibility for what takes place. And she just says to me that that's utter bullshit, that these connections are non-existent and that people can't just assume that the arson attack had to do with the Toronto Sun's columns. And so I don't know. I just honestly, I walked out of the building that day, like kind of underwhelmed and also like remotely existential, just thinking like, how do I kind of compare my ideology to theirs, like particularly with like right versus left ideology, like during our casual conversations, this is a hard thing that I even like had a hard time conversing with myself about this. Like I was standing in the office and we were having like casual conversations like myself, James Wallace, Adrian Batra, and they were just like throwing around these like casually racist jokes. And at one time, like Andy Donato walked in and he and he pitched this really racist joke about Karen Wang for the cartoon the next day. And I just like stood there and I- Who's Karen Wang? She was a former candidate for the Burnaby South by-election. Yeah, of course. Back in, right, right, back right, that in story. I, yeah, back in, I believe, what was it? Back in February. She made those comments on and was the WeChat thing. And yeah, she, about WeChat and so about- what was, the, what was Donato's cartoon idea? Oh man, what are Donato's rejected cartoon <laughs> ideas? That's a, um, it was, uh, he wanted to, to-, to animate Wang Tan Soup. As a play on oh, words for wonton soup, which tomato. in itself is so cheap, first of all. Like, let's just address how bad of a joke that is. But second of all, so racist. Um, yeah, it, I don't know. It was just like shocking to me that they're so invested in this world. And like, they don't even notice that their rhetoric is problematic. Like, it's not a thing that they acknowledge whatsoever. It's not even like, a, well, this is our viewpoint. It's like, no, like what you're saying is just like, that's just not how we view things. Does that make sense? I don't, it's a hard you know, thing I, to I, I, I hear you like, you know, you're, you're looking at fellow human beings and yeah. they're friendly and you're, yes. you're trying to understand yeah. where they're coming from and yeah. how to reconcile the way you see the world with theirs. Yeah. And like, I, you know, you may be doing too much labor. You know what I mean? Like, I might be. It might be just <laughs> what it am. seems like. Anyhow, yeah. people should read your story about the story. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Duly noted. Sarah, what do you have for us today? 
Yeah. Okay. So my thing that I've been thinking about for the past couple of weeks is how nobody's really talking about how climate change is affecting people's mental health. So I've seen a lot of things about like, you know, youth groups are leading the movement against climate change and like these really dystopian headlines that say, you know, one million species are going to be extinct if we don't do something about this. And, and we have 11 years to reverse the effects of climate change, these types of coverage. And I've really noticed like a lack of representation of like my experience in my own circles that we're, we're kind of just all talking about like, what are our plans for the future now? Like, what are we going to do with ourselves? Like, I, I don't know. This is just like a really casual and kind of really dark conversation that I have with people like, oh, like, do you want to have kids? Like, I don't know. Like, should we even because of climate change? Like, that's kind of like my personal one factor that I've been thinking about so much lately. And it's something that people aren't really talking about in the mainstream. And some particular outlets are covering what's called climate anxiety. And there are a couple terms for it. And they're relatively new in like scientific communities just about kind of this like existential doom and this inevitable trauma that's coming up. And of course, it's only really relevant for the generations that are going to be alive during it and are going to have their kids be alive during the peak of it. And I, I just don't see that conversation reflected in the media whatsoever. And I'm just like really shocked, honestly, about it. That's interesting. I, you know, the story came out last week that there's this new report calling climate change mm-hmm. an existential threat by 2050. Mm-hmm. You know, by 2050. It's like sort of the most pessimistic report of yeah. these scientific reports. And it had me just like, wow, that puts you in that frame of mind. It makes me think of like life during like threat of nuclear annihilation and mm-hmm. how everyone lived when they mm-hmm. thought like, OK, we could all be gone tomorrow. The difference being that, like, when you try to get your head around, like, the anxiety of this is, like, different. Like, that one's just like, oh, just get it over with. Yeah. You know, it's been years that we've been hiding under our desks. Just push the button and let's all die. Yeah. And this is just like, well, it'll probably be, like, a couple generations of miserable suffering, war, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, like, civilization breaking down. Yeah. And, like, I just had a couple of small kids and I don't want to think about this right now. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, how does one cover, like... I mean, like, okay, so my sister, she studies ecology and evolution. She sent me this piece from Vox. Uh, It basically talks about the concept of victim blaming in reference to climate change. And she wrote about um, how the way that we're talking about climate change and the way that we blame ourselves for not recycling that one coffee cup or not putting the lid in the proper slot in the public garbage can or not using a reusable tote bag at no frills like these little things as much as they're good steps to take they're not what's going to reverse climate change and the way that we're kind of not looking to like the systemic aspects of it yeah is a form of victim blaming and i think that that's what's causing a lot of people to just kind of give up on the fight Meanwhile, it's not this like hopeless thing. It is something that we can reverse. Like we have proof that we can reverse it. But meanwhile, we have Alberta getting rid of the carbon tax. And that's like the opposite direction of where we should be going. And yet it's so normalized and no one's talking about it. And anyway, I think that people should read that piece because it's such a good example of like, okay, it's a balance of holding yourself accountable, but also remember that like you are a victim of this world that we've built. You've been made to feel responsible for something that is really on the shoulders of industry and the way that the entire world is organized politically and economically. Mm -hmm. Where can people read that piece? Uh, It's at Vox, vox Vox.com. Duly noted. I have one last one of somewhat lesser importance, but uh, (laughs) a uh, preoccupation of mine, the ongoing commercialization of the CBC. Simon Haupt of the Globe and Mail was at the upfronts. You know what the upfronts are? I don't. This is where media companies invite the advertising community and they do a big song and dance. And they go like, we've got entertainment. Here's everything that's coming up okay. on, on our network. And now's your chance to buy a big advertising package. Right. right, okay, okay. So, okay, this has been going on for years. And, you know, CBC shows, like, here's our big new commercial shows. And they announced that we, the family feud is coming to CBC. And, you know, this is like de rigueur for TV networks to do this. It was a bit different this time, as Haupt writes, in that, like, the president of the CBC, like, people attended this who usually don't attend. And the thing that caught my attention was, if you are of one school of uh, support for the CBC, it is the public broadcasting mission of the CBC. It is focused on CBC Radio 1, which is ad-free, which is, I, I think why most people who feel passionately about the CBC support the CBC is kind of like really tightly in there on their CBC Radio 1 listeners. And I think that if there were ads on that service, then their view of it may change. In any event, Matt Galloway, one of their kind of flagship stars of CBC Radio 1, is uh, trotted out on stage in front of a audience of ad buyers where he is hyping up their new app. The CBC Listen app is coming out. And he says, folks, 
it's advertising friendly. Now, they've never done this before. They've never had a public radio personality come and basically say to the advertising community, hey, open for business, ads welcome. I would suggest there's an implicit message that like, you know me, you've never heard me deliver an ad. You know, mm-hmm. well, you yeah. know, I don't know the details of which CBC shows are going to be on this listening app and whether there's going to be advertising. But I've observed in the past that as CBC moves to digital audio, yeah. and I think everyone kind of acknowledges that the future of radio is digital, they have abandoned the ad-free format of Radio 1. Everything they've done in digital audio, be it streaming audio on their website, has had pre-roll video ads that are horrible that you have to sit through four of them before you get to the content, or their podcasts, they are bringing ads to the podcast business. And I, I have a you know a, a disclosure that, of course, I have an interest in, the, in yeah. the podcast advertising business. But this seems to be suggesting that whatever they're doing on this app is going to have ads on it. And it suggests to me that that's going to include Matt Galloway's content. And I'm a little bit grossed out to see them kind of leveraging the credibility and the brand of their public broadcasters to sell more ads. And I just feel like it's something that like, I don't like, sometimes I feel like I'm a crank who's just like really fixated on this like CBC and audio ads thing. But I wonder, like, I'm convinced that the public really does care. They just don't know that it's happening yet. And that it's going to be like, are we going to have a debate about whether or not the CBC should be doing this or not? Or is it just one day all of your CBC audio is going to have ads on it and then it's just done? So when these things pop up, I feel like I should bring them to people's attention. Duly noted. Sarah, have you been following this uh, shit show, this uh, House of Commons Justice Committee hearings on the spread of online hate? Yes, right. I mean, I think this is like, you know, Trudeau government uh, in anticipation of the coming election and with everything that's happening, mm-hmm. they're you know finally getting serious about online hate. And, you know, it, it, it's like on both sides, this is just like not going well, because, of course, when you've got a government talking about suppressing speech, even Trudeau himself is saying like, uh, we don't really want to be in the business of saying what should be on Facebook and what shouldn't. So they better police it themselves. And then, of course, the conservatives are saying, oh, right, so we've got the liberal government's going to tell us what we can and can't say right before an election. And they're going to set up a committee and they're going to put together a task force that tells us what we I wonder who's the bad speaker, probably us conservatives. Classic. So these hearings, which are supposed to be about like community groups talking about how online hate affects them and leads to mass killings, becomes this kind of stage to showboat yeah. whether your side is the oppressed side or not in, in a political war of words. This is all being covered by Mac Lamaru, uh, who I'm mispronouncing his name and who uh, you work with uh, when you freelance advice. Uh, he's doing a fine job of covering these hearings and all the crazy shit that's happening there. I want to play a little bit of tape. This is what happened at the first hearing when the president of the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council, Faisal Kansuri, was really just like, I mean, I've read the testimony and he was just just like listing a series of facts that Alexandra Bissonnette, before murdering people in the Quebec mosque shooting, repeatedly sought content about anti-immigrant, alt-right and conservative commentators. And that led to this conservative MP Michael Cooper losing his shit completely. This is what that sounded like. Mr. Suri, I take great umbrage with your defamatory comments to try to link conservatism with violent and extremist attacks. And let me, Mr. Chair, read into the record uh, the statement of, so you should be ashamed. Now, with, with respect. So there is a member of parliament telling the president of the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council that he should be ashamed for linking conservatism with mass killings. Now, that president of the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council, Faisal Kansuri, was talking about the Alexandra Bissonnette case, which absolutely he was linked with. He was digesting a steady diet of conservative media and hateful media and racist media before he did that. What we edited out of that was the fact that MP Michael Cooper's defense of the conservatism has nothing to do with these mass killings. He actually read into the record a excerpt from the Christchurch shooters manifesto. And this was supposedly proof that conservatism has nothing to do with this. It wasn't even the same killing. But the manifesto, the killer whose name I won't use, had a bit about how he deplores conservatism and that he's really into communist China. The Atlantic did an analysis of that manifesto and said, this is a trolling document. This is a document that has been written knowing that we're going to be looking at this document, searching for motivations. He has shout outs to PewDiePie 
in this, you know. So he's deliberately going to distance himself from conservatism and ridiculously say that he's like into communist China for some reason so that conservatism doesn't suffer. Now, everywhere else, the media and politicians have had the good sense to basically disregard that manifesto and not mention the shooter's name. And here is this conservative MP reading it into the parliamentary record. Sheer later forces him to like withdraw it and apologize. I mean, this is really something. If you think about what these two different individuals are doing, like you've got one guy saying, hey, online hate speech leads to people like me getting murdered while we're praying. And this other guy who is a member of parliament saying, well, you should be ashamed of yourself for linking conservatism to racism. Like one person's trying to protect the reputation of the conservative party. One person's trying to prevent the next mass killing. Mm -hmm. So who should be ashamed? I mean, I think that's kind of the issue when people are trying to draw those comparisons, right? Like, again, it's back to the whole thing of like one thing is not equal to the other. And we're talking about two different things here. So you can't just apply the exact same argument, really. Like, you can't just expect to say, well, look at this source and look at what ended up happening. Like, you left-leaning people are guilty of the exact same thing. And you're basically outing yourselves as hypocrites now if you're really trying to make that argument. Yeah. Oh, there's there's good people on both sides, as Trump said. Uh, no, <laughs> no, there's a trend here. There is a battle right now going on for like the soul of the conservative party of, of yeah. can, like what you can and can't say. And Andrew yeah. Scheer had his big speech about like we don't tolerate hate. Mm-hmm. But he's got a problem. I mean, the hearings are not the only place where this is playing out. In Barrie, we had a situation where this uh, city councilor, Keenan Aylwin, learned that one of his local MPs was friends with Faith Goldie on Facebook. Okay, Faith Goldie is a white supremacist, white nationalist, same thing to me. It's well-documented, and you've got your an MP. Like, I would be very concerned if my member of parliament was friends with Faith Goldie, you know, but whatever. Yeah, That can happen on Facebook. Doesn't mean that they're connected or yeah. support each other. So he calls them out. He calls out two uh, conservative MPs and says, you know, you need to make it very clear whether you stand with Faith Goldie or not. Your leader, Andrew Scheer, spoke at the same event as Faith Goldie. There's good reason to believe that you are at least receptive. You know, I read the statement that Keenan Aylwin put on Facebook, and it was really just like, I mean, you know, it's partisan stuff, like somebody on the, on the left calling out conservative MPs. But it was also like making it like pretty easy for them to say, uh, that's ridiculous. Faith Goldie is reprehensible. I'm absolutely opposed to racism and Faith Goldie's racism. Instead of saying that, the MPs in question, Alex Nuttall and John Broussard, sued Keenan Aylwin for defamation. And MP John Broussard, conservative MP John Broussard, filed a complaint with the city of Barrie's integrity commissioner. Okay. And the integrity commissioner, and people are saying that this is a politicized post at this point, ruled against Aylwin, docked him 60 days pay and said, while it is unwise for the integrity commissioner to intervene to referee political debate, through a code complaint investigation. You think, do you think that maybe it's unwise for the integrity commissioner? you got two politicians criticizing each other, which happens in a democracy. It's unwise to intervene and referee this. But in the circumstances of this complaint, the respondent, Councillor Elwin, did denigrate and call into question the actions of a member of parliament, leading to this censure and 60 days pay, pay being docked. So we have a couple of occasions here where the, the response to people simply saying, there is a link between conservatism and hate speech. I'm not saying they're the same thing, but there mm-hmm. are connections between them. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a connection between hate speech and, and hateful violence. Mm-hmm. All of this, Sarah, leads into the second round of hearings, yeah. okay? And this was a shit show. The conservatives had their chance to bring up their own. You know, the first time we saw, okay, it's a you know representative of a Muslim group. Well, now we want to have our freedom of speech representatives here. They, they apparently invited Jordan Peterson, but he couldn't make it. <laughs> So Lindsay Shepard came and uh, a a former rebel contributor, John Robson, Mm -hmm. is now with the National Post. Mark Stein, Mark Stein came to testify on behalf of freedom of speech to this tribunal on hate speech. And I want to play a bunch of tape from this because this was this was just insane. Go for it. I am concerned. I was driving into Ottawa listening to my old friend Evan Solomon on the radio, who was arguing that, in fact, it was perhaps time for Mr. Cooper to be booted from caucus. The surviving vice chair of this committee uh, said uh, recently that Jordan Peterson should not be permitted to testify to this committee. Bernie Farber, uh, just I believe just last night, said Lindsay Shepard should be 
booted from appearing before this committee. Ms. Shepherd and uh, Mr. Peterson are law-abiding Canadian citizens, and this practice of labeling people and demanding that they be uh, instantly deplatformed, booted from uh, polite society is in fact more serious than some of the other matters before this committee. Honorable members, thank you for the invitation to appear today. Earlier this year, I received a seven-day suspension from the social media website Twitter for violating their rules against hateful conduct. Uh, I'm not willing to go along with the big shut-up. I, I appreciate you say that because we, we talk about thresholds and, and Mr. Robson was uh, raising great concern about uh, any threshold to hate speech. We, of course, for decades, since 1970, have had a, a very high threshold with respect to hate speech in the criminal code. So to all three panelists, give me one example over the last 50 years where the criminal code has been improperly applied to hate speech. One single example, 50 years. Why, what do you mean by improperly? You raise procedural concerns about Section 13. Mm. You, you, you lambasted it for your 10 minutes. Give me one example of impropriety with respect to the criminal code and hate speech over the last 50 well, years. Well, I've read the Taylor and Watcott decisions carefully, and nothing that people have complained about before this committee come anything close to the uh, narrow definitions of the Supreme Court of Canada. In right, both the narrow definitions cases. of the Supreme Court of Canada. Yes. So we're t my, my concern is an enforcement issue. I think it should be the high threshold of the criminal code. None of you have, have suggested a single example over the last 50 years as to why that high threshold is a problem. And the last thing I will say, because uh, it's not just the end of Ramadan this week, uh, but it's also this Thursday, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And Ms. Shepard, when you go on uh, YouTube and, and you, you embrace the views of population replacement with a white nationalist, just remember who the Nazis are. Thanks very much. Ms. Shepard, do you want to respond at all to that? No. That was Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith there. I mean, that's, that's it right there. Yeah. You know, so Lindsay Shepard was booted off of Twitter for seven days. The whole argument that these conservative voices are so upset and angry about, the fear they have that they are under attack and they're being silenced when challenged to come up with one application of the state limiting them or uh, you know improperly applying hate speech laws, they could not come up with one instance of that. Yeah, I mean, that happens a lot, right, when it comes to that kind of like polarizing debate. As soon as you approach anybody who talks about leftist agendas and, and, and uses terminology like that, I feel like as soon as you ask them for an example, there aren't really I haven't experienced an instance where someone was able to name something when it's something that much of like a polarizing left versus right in like the many instances that I've encountered, like super conservative. Well, I've got examples right here. Like, uh, yeah, we, we hit examples right here today. Like if the fear is if you care about freedom of speech, you're like I should be able to express an opinion without the government trying to shut me up or punishing me or limiting me in some way. Well, if the opinion you express is, hey, I think that conservatism, mainstream conservatism is linked to online hate speech, right? If that's your opinion, some people agree with that opinion, some yeah. people don't. I think it's you can demonstrate that. But that clearly falls within something that you should be able to say in a society that has yeah. free expression or free speech. Right. But for, for voicing that opinion, Faisal Khan Suri was berated by a member of parliament and told that he should be ashamed of himself. Mm-hmm. And for saying that, Barry City Councilor Keenan Elwin has two defamation lawsuits from conservative MPs mm -hmm. and lost 60 days of pay and was censured by the integrity commissioner. So there are things you can't say in Canada without the government. Conservative MPs yeah. will do everything they can to censure you, dock you, pay, sue you, mm -hmm. and shut you the hell up mm -hmm. if you say that there is a link between conservatism and online hate speech. I think it's like a reaction, like an angry reaction like well we can hit you with this kind of like doxing mentality too like we can write about you on on twitter and our public social media platforms and we can sue you and we can make all these consequences for you as soon as as soon as you say some sort of like controversial opinion about us and i think that's kind of a, a result of like cancel culture sort of and like how people are always quick to call people out on on outlandish opinions from the conservative side right. and then and then they get angry because like, well, I can't express now my views. It's like, well, yeah, you can. First of all, it's totally legal to be racist. We're just not going to let you go ahead and say it unchallenged. Like that's all anybody's really doing. But the fact that there's a lawsuit now, it's just like a hypocrisy to another level. But yeah, I, th I think it's sort of like an angry reaction. Like, hey, we can do this too. Like, maybe. Like, 
Maybe. I, I think that that's probably an element of it. I, I also think it's kind of like if somebody's making a really serious accusation to say like, how dare you, sir? How dare you take that back right now? You should be ashamed of yourself. I mean, the best defense is a good offense. And I, and I think that um, there is within within the caucus, there are a lot of conservative MPs who will fight like cornered animals to not have to absorb, accept, or deal with what is obvious to any casual observer, which is that like conservatives have a racism problem in this country. Not every conservative is a racist, but but right now there is a global movement of racist populism, and we have a conservative candidate who can't afford to lose one vote. You know, I mean, Andrew Shear is in a position where like, can he really alienate the Yellow Vest crowd, the United We Roll crowd? Can he really alienate every Canadian who watches The Rebel or is into American? Like, he needs those votes. Yeah. So. Like, you know, in the speech, I think, was a positive step. The fact that he made a speech that was like decrying racism. But when it actually comes time to like censuring and Mm -hmm. if if necessary, getting rid of people who refuse to engage with that or who actually represent it. Yeah. He's going to pay a price on the other end of it. So, yeah, that's what we're watching play out here. That's your Candleland Shortcuts. Thank you, sir. Thanks. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at S-A-R-A-H-K-R-I-C-H-E-L. That's Sarah Cushel. Or you can check out our work at theeyeopener.com. Our website is canadalandshow.com. On Oppo this week, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, they will tell you who they want the next prime minister to be. And you can check out Sarah's piece about her pursuit of Adrian Batra on our site as well. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, if you would like to receive a t-shirt or a bottle opener or ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, those are the things that we give to our supporters. We rely on your support and you can give it to us at patreon.com slash Canada Land. Thank you.